welcome back to the Thunder Six Podcast. I am your host, Ben Kreider, and today we are on day two of talking about all the different Thunder players on the roster. We talked about point guards yesterday. If you want to listen to me talking about SGA and Ty Jerome, yesterday has got that for you. But today, there is a quartet of players I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking about Kenrich Williams, Teo Maladon, Sfi Luke and Charlie Brown Jr. I don't know how long I'm going to be talking about Charlie Brown Jr., but he is going to be discussed in this podcast at some time. So, very excited, like I said, about talking about all these guys. Have a lot of just thoughts about everybody. So, I'm really happy to hammer out four different players, and for the next three days, even more. So, starting things out, I'm going to go with the rookie, Enteo Maladone. And if you guys listened to, or I guess if you guys are checking me out on Twitter, um, I posted that Maladone, you know, I had a little segment from one of my earliest episodes where before I was really doing much, I just kind of posted on and off like once a week, whenever I felt like it. I had one after the draft, and I was talking about Teo as, you know, how good he could be. And I I, I thought the takes there were great. I said he was an elite passer in the draft class. I still believe that. I said he was a steal at 34. I still believe that. I think I hammered out everything. And I said he could pair with SGA. He can actually do that too. But, you know, with all those takes, I just couldn't get over the fact I sounded so dead inside. Like, I was mispronouncing his name. Pokusevsky was also right before it. You guys, like, I, I was, I don't even know how I mispronounced it. I was like, Pusevsky or something I was insane I don't know it was not good I might delete that tweet because it's pretty embarrassing looking back on it but I had some takes from Teo's game I think it translated pretty well to what we saw from him this season so as a 19 year old rookie there really wasn't a real I guess milestone for him because it was kind of like Poku, where Poku was almost seen as someone that you take two years to develop with. Teo was also seen as a developmental guy, but I really don't remember the G League part really being in the equation for him. And I remember Sam Presti, whenever he made the decision to bring Poku and Ty Jerome to the bubble, he said that he actually considered bringing Teo and Isaiah Roby down there too, and it didn't make sense to me. And... I guess originally it was based on the age. You want to be able to make him a better playmaker. But he brought you everything from day one to the point there was no need. And he was just off and running. It started with his major preseason game. 20 points against the San Antonio Spurs. Him and Isaiah Roby were the biggest threat on the Thunder roster. In that like two-game stint they played together. But he was great. Just as a player on the pick and rolls. He was beautiful. He was able to bump using his like behind to create room talk about all the time but that's that's really one of his primary go-to's and it worked down to a T when he was driving inside he had Isaiah Roby slashing right with him he was able to make the correct reads when he ended up getting both guys really trying to put pressure on him so he was great and then just dishing outside in general was amazing for him but taking it overall as a product Teo ended up finishing his rookie campaign averaging 10.1 points, 3.2 rebounds, and 3.5 assists in 65 games. Played the most minutes on the Thunder roster. I don't think we've seen that from a second-round pick. 
and whenever I've seen it on Bally Sports, maybe just in general, he might be the first rookie to play the most minutes, but maybe KD, well, actually KD was for the Supersonic, so wipe that, maybe like a Westbrook, or yeah, I guess Westbrook might be there, it was a weird stat, but I know as a second round pick, he's the first guy to do it in franchise history, anyways though, yeah, he was exactly what you needed, he started out off the bench playing point guard, because George Hill, he did have that two guard locked down, and George Hill was great, I mean, he gave you the perimeter shooting that was necessary for the roster at the time, but when he got injured, and his hand got kind of jacked up, that opportunity for Maladone was something that I think everybody wanted to see, because he was playing off the bench so well, and that I think it was right before he got moved to the starting lineup, or a couple games in, this was a January game against the Brooklyn Nets, he rattled down like six threes, went six for six, had 20 plus points, that was his career high at the time, and that's when you really started to take Teo seriously, because originally, he was just a really good passer, playing in France, he, truthfully, two years ago, would have been a lottery pick, and he got such a raw deal from the coaching staff there, I think it's Asvel, I don't know exactly what the pronunciation is, but in France, he wasn't played in big games, when scouts were there, he was sitting on the bench the whole time, and you know what the scouts are, you know, in attendance were there for? It was to watch Teo play, so I don't know if the coaches were trying to make him stay but they were doing him extremely dirty he was able to get over that hump and obviously make the league but I think if he played a lot this is a guy that in a redraft is almost in that lottery area and he probably would have been picked in the lottery over a lot of these other point guards had he been used as a star like he was playing in France when he actually had the uh the right opportunities but anyways he came over, and the passes he was making, he would be going mid-air, throwing over-the-head dots across the court. If he's driving in from the left side, he'll soar, he'll elevate. If he sees somebody on the right corner open because his man is creeping down, he knows it. He's going to throw it over there, and there's going to be a wide-open possession, and it worked. It translated perfectly over to the NBA, and then even driving and dishing went down to a T. I don't think that as a slasher, he's amazing yet because the speed is not always there. You don't tend to have guys kind of coming from the corner needing to help because even if a guy is a couple steps behind, since Teo's not extremely fast, a typical point guard in the NBA can make up those steps in time. And if someone's hedging, also that can be another equation but then you got the pass in which is probably his greatest skill as a passer pick and roll iq is his strong suit whenever he's driving inside he knows when and when not to give it to the roller and even in pick and pop scenarios he knows if his you know the big man's defender is dropping down he's gonna go and throw the ball right back outside and you are gonna get an open look just overall passing you would not think he's a 19 year old you'd think he's a seasoned veteran 30 year old who just came off of leading the team to the playoffs or something it is that high and I don't know if I would want to consider him one of the best on the team already because SGA has become very good and you know Teo does have some turnover issues kind of spotted in there he averaged 2.2 a game this year but I mean those passes some of them 
like I said, we're at an all-star level, and you can only assume right now that that is going to trend upwards. So as a passer, he was expected to be very, very good, and he did that and much more. And I think the floater game for him and runner game, he's very good at creating space down there uh, whenever he's rolling to the basket, but they just weren't dropping in. The touch was not amazing. I think next year, you're going to see him being a lot more dangerous when rolling to the basket, and it's not going to be on how open he's getting because he's able to do that at an effective rate already. It's just a matter of being able to get those runners in because when he gets those, that's when you kind of tread the waters of him dropping 20 points in a game. And then there's other areas that kind of open up that Pandora's box for Teo Maladone, and it is from the three. Now, playing in France, he did not have a lot of three-point attempts, so the sample size was small, but he was shooting low to mid-30s. I think it was either 32% or 34% on very minimal attempts. And when you see that, you like to tend to look at other areas, like free throw, for example. It's pretty all right there, too. So you, you just kind of got to go off of maybe how he squares up, what the release looks like. Is it fluid every time? And in France... It was pretty damn fluid, so you had the 32%, and you didn't know if it was going to weigh one way or the other, but the hope was, in time, he could develop into an actual three-point threat, and I don't think it was expected as a rookie he'd already be that. To start out the season, there was actually a point in time where he led the Thunder in catch-and-shoot percentages. George Hill was the primo guy he reigned on a throne and even if you still look now george hill is number one he was shooting 47.5 percent on catch and shoots from downtown teo for a brief moment in january was actually above george hill shooting around 48 percent now that has dropped drastically over the course of the season because he went from a just a reserve role to being the starter and the guy out there the most for the thunder this year and ended up kind of faltering down to 34 and a half but that is still extremely good you are not going to look at that and say that's terrible because if you have any complaints you know i'm going to show you i'm going to show you all these different guys that sam pressy brought in or guys that we had off the bench defensive specialists the robersons the josh hustises the kyle singlers the patrick patterson's the Terrence Ferguson's, Diallo's, those guys who could not make a shot. Teo Maladone hit shots consistently, and he had those down games, but he had a lot more positive impact games from downtown than anyone else. There were so many nights where he shot two of five from downtown, and that on paper might not look amazing, but that's 40%. 40% is considered an elite three-point percentage right now, so you liked what you saw from Maladon, and there's no other way about it from how he was shooting the basketball behind the arc. He was shooting those catch and shoots over 50% of the time. Overall, whenever he was playing in these games, he shot an attempted, what is it, 4.8? Yeah, 4.8 threes a game. And out of those 4.8, 3.1 were off the catch. So he was an off-ball threat for the Thunder, but also working on his own, he was able to create his own shots. And he's not a guy like an SGA or someone on the rise like a Cade Cunningham of sorts, where he has a step-back move or any go-to 
to free himself up. No, he just analyzes the floor, and if he sees there is a big gap between himself and his defender, he'll be able to launch his jumper. And it's just like SGA's where you look at it, and it's not that fast. But it's okay. He still manages to make it work. And there's never really a time where he, he seems contested when he starts launching up triples. And that's what makes him very, very scary. As I said, he's 19. He's six foot five, which means he's not limited to a point guard role. In fact, he might be more suited at 6'5 as a shooting guard. I know the league is going trending upwards and upwards on height, but 6'5 is still pretty modest at the two. Like that slips into a typical spot. At point guard, he's a luxury at 6'5", and as a passer, he is a point guard. He is a wizard there. And like I talked about, even as a shooting guard, it makes sense because he's off the ball. And when you are talking where the direction of the Thunder is going, especially when you're talking backcourt players, specifically a point guard and shooting guard, there has been one common factor that I think has just stuck. And it's with the three current guys. I talked about it yesterday. It's worth reiterating today. SGA, he's six foot five. I think even six foot six. I think he's six foot six. He's an off ball and on ball threat. Ty Jerome, he overall was shooting in the 40, well into the 40% actually on catch and shoots. 41.2%. He is an off ball threat. On the ball, he's amazing at reading, and he'll just hover and wait for shots. For Maladone, he is just like that. Not very fast, but a very good decision maker. He makes it up with his killer passing to where he doesn't need to be the isolation specialist where he frees himself up all the time. He just needs to do whatever, and hey, he might not have a wide open shot, but he has visualization of all other four guys on the floor. And he's going to pick out the best guy pretty much every single time. And then off the ball, he's still good at shooting. So you have three players, SGA 6'6", Ty and Teo are both 6'5". You can just swap those players around anywhere on the offensive side, but also defensively, it gives you the room. And in this draft class, there's two scary guys in Cade Cunningham and Jalen Green. Cade 6'8", Jalen is 6'6". They both are off and on the ball threats. If you somehow manage to wheel one of them to Oklahoma City in the draft, you have, for the future, a perfect combination at the point guard and shooting guard spot, and that can take you places. Even without that, Teo Maladone can be the starting shooting guard for the Thunder. And when you want to say all-star, I, I don't know. I think that, honestly, he can develop into a borderline all-star and maybe even bridge the gap but I will say the Thunder is not going to be the best place for that I think if he were to flourish it would be with another franchise that actually wants someone at a true point guard SGA has the reins down he's going to be the point guard of the future and if you get somebody else like a Kate or Jalen then it's maybe more of a 50-50 cut I think with Teo you're never really going to get there SGA is still always going to be the big brother. If Teo was shipped out to where he was controlling the strings and being that puppet master, he would be able to grow into that. I think even in a role next to SGA, he'd still be able to be a great passer. And catching and shooting, he'd still be fine. 
He doesn't need to be an amazing attacker to the basket. Just have that three-point lockdown and then the passing game and doing stuff on his own also works. Defensively, he was an all right player. You know, there were games where he would get feisty in stealing the basketball. He averaged 0.9 a game, but there were times he'd be kind of going on three, maybe even four steals a game. Blocking, he was actually a lot better than what the stats would show. 0.2 a game. If you guys remember all these different chase down blocks he had on bigs, there could be like a whole five minute tape. Now, if you want to tally them up, there's maybe like 10 that he did this year, but you're talking, he is going up against seven footers that had easy position. We're talking a lot of the times in pick and rolls, there would be just some errant switches where there'd be miscommunication. It should be an easy two points every time. Well, Teo never gave up and he could just chase down. He'd get the momentum and he'd be able to smack the ball and it was either jump balls he'd be getting here or just pinning it up against the glass i don't know where that goes from right now but as a blocker he's still very underrated and that's a part of his game that's not going to be really highlighted i think the main deal is offensively as a passer and the three-point shooting is what you talk about here but defensively there are a couple of roots that were grown out here and with a little bit of nourishment I think sophomore season for him can be huge in terms of development. It all comes down to how we see the roster constructed. If he is the day one starter, which I think, unless there is a major draft pick at point guard, or not point guard, shooting guard or small forward, because if you go small forward, there's a potential Dort could go back to the two. Just if he stays afloat, he is going to be up for a breakout season next to SGA and that might change over time I might change my take but that's where I'm going right now I genuinely believe that I think that he at 34 was the biggest steal in that second round the only other guy was Paul Reed and Paul Reed he's good he's not Teo Maladone though so Teo was probably the biggest steal that the Thunder got here Poku he's a steal too I'll be talking about him in, I guess, uh, I guess it'd be Friday's episode, actually. But moving right along to someone I'm going to be talking about today, right now, it's going to be Kenrich Williams. And this was a player who, entering the season for the Thunder, not even the season, the preseason, was a favorite to be cut by the team and I was one of those guys I'm not gonna say I was not one of the people thinking that Kenrich was the easy easy cut here he was 26 years old entering training camp he was on you know that three-year like two mil even coat like so I guess three years six million overall so that's a good contract but he was 26 and the two other guys that were just thrown in to this mega Steven Adams deal, got us like five guys, were Joshua Gray and Zylan Cheatham. I thought out of those three, Cheatham was probably going to be the one that stuck, stuck around because he had Arizona State roots and he was teammates with Lou Dort for a year. And he was a he's a pretty athletic power forward, actually. So I thought he might just stay. I didn't think Kenrich or Joshua Gray would stick. Gray was the first one gone, then you saw Cheatham, and then it was just Kenrich Williams remaining, and he stayed, 
and when we got to see him in the preseason, he was really, really interesting and actually swayed my mind a bit to where whenever I was talking preseason cuts, I said I wouldn't be shocked if Kenrich got moved, but he's actually a pretty solid player that gives you versatility. And before coming over to the Thunder, he was actually already a pretty interesting guy for the Pelicans. Two seasons with them, played over 20 minutes both years, but his little coat of doing a little bit of everything was pretty damn surprising. For the Pelicans, the season before he came over, he averaged 3.5 points, 4.8 rebounds, 1.5 assists, 0.7 steals, and 0.5 blocks. That is just giving you spots of just everything you possibly can imagine. And then on top of that, when he was shooting from three, he was flaky. Like his rookie season, he shot 33%. And then that last year, he shot 25% from the floor. But overall, there was still kind of hope there that he might be able to wheel out something. So he went into the preseason for the Thunder he was not extremely impressive. He shot 17% from the field, and it's not a lot of attempts, but the shots weren't going in, but he was making up for it off of rebounds, off of assists, and off of the defense, so he barely made it. I don't know exactly what the conversations were like in terms of the final cut on Frank Jackson. I would assume somewhere in there, Kenrich was discussed, though. But he stuck around, and it was an amazing move because Kenrich, as a sole bench player, gets that sixth man of the year award from me. And Teo would be in consideration, but Teo, he was in the starting lineup a lot. Kenrich was still playing in the starting lineup, played 13 games, but overall, he was just the focal point of the bench and the most consistent player day in and day out to where offensively, if he had a bad game, defensively he was gonna be amazing defensively a bad game for him is average like he's a great defender and offensively he could pick it up to where he's shooting six of eight could not miss from three and he'd have 15 points in 10 minutes so he had that microwave factor that really worked towards his advantage i think with all of that said it's worth kind of dissecting one by one overall though he averaged eight points 4.1 rebounds, 2.3 assists, and 0.8 steals, playing 21.6 minutes a game. I want to start out, though, on the defensive side, because when you are, you know, just vying for a roster spot, you know how you make things work out and you start getting that confidence from the coaches? You need to be fighting for every single rebound, every single steal. Loose ball, that needs to be yours. Rebound-wise, you need to soar up and make your presence known. Kenrich Williams, maybe he was coined Kenny Hustle before this season, but he definitely earned his stripes in Oklahoma City based on the way he played defensively. Loose balls, he's going for them every time, and for the most part, he created those loose balls. He was good at picking pockets, and in the passing lanes, he might be the best player the OKC Thunder has right now. He, he has such good vision in terms of where passes are coming from. He lingers like 10 feet behind. He think, he no, he gives off the effect that someone's going to be wide open for a catch and shoot three. And he's going to stay right in the mid-range, just baiting and baiting the point guard or whoever has the ball. And as soon as a pass is thrown, I don't care if it is a fastball 
or just a simple like lob throw. Kenrich Williams is going to cover that difference, and if he does not end up getting the basketball, he's going to have someone pinned at that wing. And one of the most spectacular things about him was not just being able to stop someone in a passing lane, but also preventing passing lanes from opening up. And with the Thunder, specifically in the months of February and March, kind of mid-season for me, this is when it stuck out like a sore thumb. The switching on defense was pretty horrendous, and there was a lot of times where on a pick-and-roll scenario, the Thunder would just get absolutely dominated, and I think partially it's due to Al Horford never really having an amazing hedge game, like he always just stayed in the background, led to some sticky situations, and then even behind him, just there wasn't really that great of pick-and-roll defense almost all season, but when you had guys slashing to the basket, you would have people from the corner always running down, they'd kick it out to the corner, guy from the wing rotates, and then you just start playing, passing it to the wing, top of the key, passes to the next wing, you'll find someone beyond the arc, and you would have times where the Thunder, they, some of them just gave up on the play entirely, they would be waiting down low, expecting a shot to go up, and then you'd have like six, five, six guys just fighting over a rebound. Kenrich Williams never wanted to do that. If there were two guys open from outside, you know what he would do? He would go to the first guy in line. Let's say someone with the left wing has the basketball. They're clearly going to pass it to the dude at the top of the key. So guy on the left wing, someone's closing out on him. He's kicking it to the top of the key. You know where Kenrich Williams is going to run? He's going to run to the right side, the opponent's right side. And that means that, sure, the guy can catch the basketball, but he's already smothered. And if he wants to kick it around to the guy wide open in the right wing, he's got to throw it above Kenrich Williams, and that's not going to work. The activity he has with his hands, you're not going to be able to throw a pass over him. So he's able to damn near double team people with, you know, being 10, 15 feet away from a guy. It is ridiculous some of the stuff he was pulling defensively. And then, as I said, you top it all off with how he's hustling for just every single rebound. But if you want to give a Defensive Player of the Year award, Lou Dort is the common consensus. He's the guy that everybody talks about for an all-defensive second team. But if there was a bench award show, Kenridge Williams very well could be Defensive Player of the Year. And there might be some candidates you could throw out there. I don't know of any that stack up with Williams, though. Definitely in a Thunder sense, though, there was no one defensively that held things together like Kenrich. And I'm talking often, or not offensively, second unit or starter. He just made everybody so much better on the defensive end. And maybe it's because he's able to make them look uh, a lot better by kind of handling some of those duties. But it ultimately doesn't really matter. Defensively, straight up mastermind. I loved what Kenrich brought to the table. Moving on, though, to something that kind of roots off of his defensive play is the activity he has as a rebounder. And Kenrich Williams is not a fast guy. He's not like Hamnu Diallo, where you know how he gets his offensive rebounds? He's going to just sprint his way inside and go off a trampoline to grab the basketball. Kenrich can't do that, but what he does is he just straight up uses sneak attacks, just like he does in the passing lane. He loves lurking right behind, and when a shot goes up, 
He wants to wait for everybody to materialize down low. And then he starts searching for the empty pockets right below the basket to try to come down with the rebound. He finds a way to strike. He gets position out of nowhere. And he's able to elevate, get the ball, and go up for second chances. In some cases, he'd like to kick it out. But he goes up a lot of the time. And I remember second chance points was where everything started for Kendrick this season. It was defense, and then it was him working as a rebounder. Overall this season, Kendrick Williams, out of those 4.1 rebounds he had, 1.3 of those were offensive. And in the year before with the Pelicans, 1.3 out of his 4.8 were on the offensive. And then the year before that, 1.2 of his 4.8 came off the offensive glass so there was just a big spike in terms of the offensive rebounding like over 31 percent of his rebounds came offensively this season that's ridiculous and I don't know if there's anybody who stacks up to that ratio quite frankly Kenrich might as well just like led the team and I'm gonna I'm gonna revert that because I know Moses Brown probably averages like seven a game at least G League wise he definitely did but as a shooting guard, he, he was far ahead of everybody, light years ahead of everybody. So that's a deal that's going to transfer over to him perfectly fine next season. And one thing that for sure will is his offensive game. So I said second chances, mid-range wise, some guys just didn't want to guard him for some reason. And it's not like he has a quick pull-up or anything. But he just had to stop pop and he hit wide open mid-ranges. But the big breakthrough in his game came from downtown. Probably the most reliable scorer we had from beyond the arc this season was Kenrich Williams. From the perimeter, he shot 44.4% on 1.8 attempts. And that's one of those things where 1.8 really doesn't speak to where he was actually going. You know, he'd have those games where he'd go one for two, two for two. But there were also times where he was shooting like four or five a game and he'd just rifle them down. And when he wasn't going off threes, he'd be working in the mid-range, also shooting fairly high. Overall, he shot 53.3% from the floor. For comparison, he shot 34.7% last season with the New Orleans Pelicans. So that gigantic jump, that's almost a 20% jump there. You should never see that field goal wise, but Kenrich somehow did it. And then from three, he also took almost a 20% jump from 25% to 44%. Are you kidding me? 44% is probably the top 1% of just in general players in the NBA shooting from beyond the arc. So I don't even understand. It's mind-boggling to me to even visualize how that improvement can kind of work itself out. Obviously, it comes from just tedious effort in the gym, and you have to commend him for it. But wow, man, he was doing everything. And as he was shooting these up, for the most part, it was coming off shots that people gave to him because he's not really an on-the-ball guy. He does take it in the post. He does take it in the mid-range. But typically, he'll be the wing guy who just waits there. And guys, for whatever reason, always thought he could be the weak spot from the perimeter. P.S. He never was. 
So he was just waiting. And overall, he shot 44.9% on catch and shoot opportunities. That is the best that is on the active roster. George Hill's above him, but George Hill played 14 games. Kenrich Williams played 66. And right behind him, SGA played 35. Ty Jerome played 33. No one had as many games as Kenrich. So the sample size is not an issue. He is a certified sharpshooter. And there's a reason why in trade deadline day, people were calling up Sam Presti, trying to pick at Kenrich Williams, seeing if they could get him off the market. Presti said no. And I think when you look at it, he's 26 one of the older guys on the roster, is he going to be contributing in the next five years? I definitely think he will. This contract is so special though that I think the trade value, if he keeps this up next year, should be at a premium. I'm assuming you were talking like almost a George Hill kind of deal. We'll give you two second round picks and a filler, maybe even a young guy. Presty wouldn't have taken that and he would have been an idiot too. You need a first round pick to get Kenrich Williams because he is somebody that for a playoff team is perfect for you. Budget wise, he fits the bill. You're not going to dig into any sort of tax here. You're not going to be going any against any restrictions. You could have no money in the bank and you should be able to take on Williams perfectly fine. And the way he's able to impact the game, I don't know if there's a guy that has the most bang for your buck than Kenrich Williams does at his current contract. And we have him for the next two seasons, by the way. So I feel bad for the man. He needs a raise. Thunder probably aren't going to give it to him, but he for sure deserves it. I'm pumped to see what the future holds for him. He might be a guy that might be just trickled into a trade deal. If that might pop up, I really hope not because I don't know if you're going to find this sort of production as a 3 and D player on the roster currently. That's Williams' role and he fits the mold perfectly. Moving on though, it's kind of another, I don't want to say 3 and D player, but definitely from the three-point range, he's a marksman. It's Svi Mikhailuk, and whenever we originally got him from Detroit, there was a little bit of pain because Hamadou Diallo was sprouting out into a dominant isolation player. When we saw Point Diallo, he was passing the ball out. And the biggest concern with Diallo ever since he was selected by the Thunder was he had tunnel vision. And he had tunnel vision most of this season. I'd say actually some of this season. But like the month before the Thunder traded him and he was forced to play point with SGA out and Teo out, he was great. I think he even had like a 10 assist game or something. But he was actively looking to kick to the corner when he was driving in. And driving in, he's always been double-teamed for the most part. He's so, so athletic, bouncy, speedy. You can't really take him one-on-one. He's special. He can't shoot real well. If he could, he wouldn't have been traded because he would have been amazing for the team. But, I mean, just slashing, you always need help. And he would kick it out. So, when he got moved... It was like, why would you do that? You wasted three years, and now he's finally giving signs of being amazing, and you, you dump him for Svee, who's good, but he doesn't have that star potential that Diallo would, at least as like a microwave guy. But Svee, he was solid for the Thunder this season, and he played at a career-high level with us. 
averaged 10.3 points, 3 rebounds, and 1.8 assists in the 30 games he played in a Thunder uniform this season. And the 3-point shot for him, he shot 33.6%, which is still pretty damn solid. So we got him really as a one-trick pony, as a guy at 23, entering restricted free agency this year. You just toy with him and see if he can be kind of the Alex Abrina as we had four or five years ago. He was able to do that, and as a catch-and-shoot player, pretty damn solid. He ended up shooting on those catch-and-shoots 33.3% on three attempts, so very, very clean on the numbers there. But he also had those times where he just hit so just crazy shots. He'd be pinned up against the corner. He'd fade away. He'd swish a jumper. And then he'd have, like, occasionally a pretty limitless range three. But with Svi, the big talk of the town is not his shot. It was that, as an athlete, he was just so surprising. In Detroit, he wasn't known as a dunker. I didn't even I, I didn't even know if I've seen the man dunk before. But he went in and then immediately he started just hammering down dunks for the Thunder. And these aren't crazy tomahawks or anything. But based on the knowledge we had before, this guy looked like Calvin Cambridge from Like Mike. Like he was soaring, exceeding expectations, damn near draw like jaw dropping. You're screaming at the television originally when he's throwing down like one-handed flushes and some of the other stuff he was doing but yeah I mean he was able to set himself apart in that area and I think for the future that means a lot for his potential value because he's not just a guy that you can stack up inside because you get him the ball he gets a pump fake he can take a step in and take a mid-range but he could also drive it into the basket and try to collect a foul or just straight up dunk on you he's had posterizers this season with the team and even going inside, I mean, he was able to get free throws a little bit. Not a ton, but a little bit. It was there. He's a three-level scorer now. And originally, he was not seen as that. That means something for the Thunder. Now, the thing with Svi is if you're going to play him, he's 6'7". So you can play him at small forward or shooting guard. And there shouldn't be an issue. So he fits the versatility. But I don't think he works right now currently because you have... Just that huge wall of guys already in SGA, Teo, Ty, and now Kenrich. But even working yourself up into the small forward area, there's Lou Dort, there's Gabrielle Deck, who also you can flip-flop around, but I'd say small forward, you can throw him there, even a Roby. Now, I'd say Sfi is a pretty good competition to both of them, but the difference is both Deck and Roby they're signed past, you know, this season. Svee's off the books. We might not see him again in a Thunder jersey. So it's difficult because with the kind of trades he has, he's going to be pulling 6 to $8 million in free agency. That's what I believe. At 23, you throw him a three-year deal where, yeah, like three-year, 18 mil. If you're contending, that is an amazing contract to be working with. I know for Luke Kennard, He's also one of those guys who's, I guess he's more of a shot creator, um, but he's kind of just known as uh, a shock, like a sharpshooter too. Like he is meant for a spot up role. You know what he's making for the Los Angeles Clippers right now? Over these next three seasons, 
he's going to be making $41 million. That's an average of just around $14 million. So he's not like he's not going to be on that same level, but I think he'd just be a silent guy that would be amazing. For the Lakers, he was seen as a stud. When he got traded to the Pistons, everyone was upset. With the Pistons, he wasn't used correctly. People like Wayne Ellington were above him on the rotation for whatever reason. He could find a home here with the Thunder, but the problem is, just like it might be with Teo, he's going to have a role, but starting, you don't know. If you get a guy at shooting guard or small forward, just a wing in general, I think Sfee's bounced out of the rotation and he might not be resigned. I do really like him though. He was great for his time in Oklahoma City. And one man who I don't even know how to talk about him really, it's Charlie Brown Jr. We got him right after Justin Robinson. It was a bit of a surprise, like... I felt like if we were going to get a 10-day, really even for Robinson too, it should have been a big man. It should have been Dante Hall. It should have been Omer Gert 7. Dante Hall, he wrapped up a 10-day with the Magic. And Yurt 7, he's going to be fighting for a training camp spot for next year. He actually got signed by the Miami Heat, so they got to steal on him anyways. But yeah, I mean, he got picked up and he was all right in the G League. For the Iowa Wolves, he had a pretty good game against the Thunder, or I guess the Blue whenever they faced each other, but it's kind of just like a 3 and D guy. He's already 24 years old. I don't know. Like, it's weird because there's already such a minute restriction in the wings, and you put him on the two 10 days, you play him a lot. See, I'm not going to fault him because overall, like, he, he was not that great because he averaged like 4 4.4 points, 1.9 rebounds and one assist in 17 minutes. It wasn't that great for him and then like shooting wise too, he shot 30% and 23% from 3. Those aren't like star-studded numbers at all. So, for the Thunder to get him and then you know, after two 10 days that were like you know, nothing crazy. I think on a 10-day, you need to be scoring double digits. You need to earn that second contract. And Charlie Brown Jr., he got a start during one of those games against the Pacers. That was terrible. And he shot bad, but he was a second-best shooter in the starting unit, which is ridiculous. I really is kind of telling of how that game ended up going. But um, yeah, like there wasn't a major breakthrough game for him, I would say. Steel-wise, I think he's a pretty good sealer like in terms of picking people's pockets he's great defensively he's on an nba level um offensively though i don't know i'm not really sold on the three he's extremely raw and at 24 i don't know how you can throw him into the training camp and he's gonna outplay all these guys the thunder already have lined up i just i just don't see it i don't see the minutes working you have him on a multi-year contract right now just like it is constructed with lou dort moses brown you have a guaranteed season, which I guess he just got through, and then the next, maybe one or two, he might be on a two-year, but it's not guaranteed for the next two, so he's not gonna be owed anything by the franchise, I think really he's gonna get waived, and you're gonna see him playing for the blue, kind of like what we've seen with Exhibit 10 deals, originally what they did with Jalen Horde and Melvin Frazier Jr., Yurt7, they want to see him as kind of 
a potential star on this G League team, and maybe they go for another call-up, but it was just a little bit obscure. There's not enough, really, to talk about with him. Like, he could show up and be a good 3 and D guy. That's where the potential lies, and he he showed that in the G League with the Hawks affiliate and then with the Wolves, but... You know, in, in the nine games, it wasn't like you were jotting him down on your notes saying he is the next big thing for the Thunder. Maybe like we've seen with some of these other guys that have gradually just improved with the team. So that's my take on Charlie Brown Jr. I know it's it's kind of short, but, you know, did you want me to talk 20 minutes about him? I don't think so, um, honestly. But the other three guys, though. Hopefully you guys did like my analysis on them. If you have any other takes, make sure to send me them on Twitter. My handle is just my name, so just Ben Kreider. Type it in. You will find me. Any suggestions, DMs are open. Have a video idea, also shoot it my way, and I'll be happy to respond to anything you guys have for me. But other than that, though, guys, that is going to wrap up today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.